space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to D-Next, the innovation, big dreamer, and entrepreneur podcast. And I'm your host, Paul Kay. The idea of outer space has been with us probably since the beginning of consciousness. It's everything that we saw when we looked up, caught dreaming, wondering about what's out there or what's next. We may have had our experiences with the outer world in the ancient times, but really it's taken up until now before this current modern civilization has really been able to make some real progress, big contact and deep connection with the beyond. Today, we'll speak with someone who has made probably one of the most groundbreaking discoveries in modern history. Someone who is preparing us for the next age of an intergalactic species. This is D-Next, and buckle up. Avi, thank you so much for joining us for D-Next. You know, I, I've had guests that range from uh, the people who've created Woodstock or Apple Computer, but I've never had anyone uh, who's been venturing into, uh, I guess, the great beyond like this. And I, I consider you a, a, a true uh, a true pioneer. And uh, so it's my honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much. But uh, you know, uh, the trip that we will discuss uh, uh, was funded uh, by a private donor, uh, Charles Hoskinson, and he also arranged for um, uh, getting there th with his private jet. And when I got to the plane, um, the pilot said, uh, welcome aboard, Professor Loeb. And I said, uh, you don't need to use these titles. You can call me Avi because fundamentally I'm a curious farm boy. And so I say the same to you. Uh, you know, I was shaped by my childhood. Uh, I'm basically curious about nature. I don't have any footprint on social media. I don't care about uh, how many likes I have. And uh, I just want to figure out our, you know, the reality that we all share based on evidence, not based on what people tell me. Well, I, I think uh, I'm even more honored now to, uh, to speak with you because I, I really do think we need more people like you. Okay, so let me just start off, I think, with, in my mind, what is the big question? And you can maybe explain it to us. How significant is this discovery that you've recently made? I mean, what does it mean? I mean, it seems profound uh, to me, but perhaps you can explain it to me. It's uh, very significant uh, because 70 years ago, Enrico Fermi, a famous physicist, asked during lunchtime at Los Alamos, where is everybody? Uh, talking about extraterrestrial civilizations. And 
to me it sounds like a single person sitting at home and saying you know where are my partners i don't see anyone around me perhaps there is nobody out there but uh, of course we know that in order for that person to find a partner uh, the person has to go to dating sites if you don't explore you don't search you will not find anyone it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and for the first time in human history we now have a chance to find a partner because uh, I went to the Pacific Ocean to find the materials from the first object that was recognized to originate from outside the solar system. We've never had such an object before uh, that we could study and uh, this particular object collided with Earth uh, and uh, in 2014 the US government uh, sensors noticed the fireball. They are monitoring Earth for ballistic missiles nat for national security uh, purposes but uh, every now and then they see an object colliding with earth from outer space this one was different it was moving really fast and in fact we calculated with my student Amir Siraj that it was moving at 60 kilometers per second speed relative to the solar system outside the solar system so faster than 95% uh, of all stars in the vicinity of the sun and uh, moreover based on the US government data we figured out that uh, this uh, object was made of a material that had uh, a strength that is larger than all space rocks that were catalogued by NASA uh, 272 of them over the past decade so if you have an object the first one from outer space beyond the solar system and it has material strength that is larger than iron meteorites and moreover it's moving faster than 95% of all stars. It raises the possibility that maybe it's, it was a technological object, a spacecraft uh, that was propelled uh, artificially. That's why it's moving fast and also made of some alloy that is tougher than iron meteorites. And so uh, it, this is not a philosophical question. Uh, one can address this question of whether it was artificial or natural just by going out to the Pacific Ocean and collecting the materials. So I bring this question of whether we are alone or not down to Earth. I went to the Pacific Ocean with a team of exceptional uh, professionals and uh, we found it. We found the relics from the explosion. We found those tiny metallic marbles at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And just to illustrate how difficult it was, these marbles that are molten droplets from the surface of this object, because the fireball uh, released a few percent of the Hiroshima atomic bomb energy uh, into about 500 kilograms of material. And um, that uh, obviously melted the material um, and it rained down as droplets on the ocean floor. And uh, that happened 10 years ago and these millimeter size droplets that weigh a milligram each um, you know they span a, a region of 10 kilometers in size so it's a needle in an ocean <laughs> to find those things and um and um, it's a heroic effort to actually figure out a method that can bring to the deck of the ship that we boarded which was fittingly called the silver star you know it's a fishing expedition bringing to the deck a fish <laughs> that have a has a size of one millimeter out of a region of 10 kilometers 
from an ocean depth of two kilometers. And uh, I thought when we went there that, you know, it's not clear that we will be successful and maybe we'll not find anything. Uh, the person who helped me coordinate this expedition, Rob McCallum, uh, he brought some uh, champagne on, on deck, on the boat. Uh, and I asked him afterwards, after we were successful, I asked him, why would you bring champagne? I mean, I would never open a bottle if uh, we didn't find anything. And he said, well, I'm optimistic. So uh, my lesson from that is that uh, life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't search, you will not find anything. If you are taking a risk, you might be successful. You know, this, uh, this sounds like a, like a Hollywood film. I mean, you sound like a combination <laughs> between, you know, Jacques Cousteau and Indiana Jones from the modern age, <laughs> which, is, which is amazing. Well, there were 50, five zero uh, filmmakers and producers that approached me in the months preceding the expedition. They wanted to be on the ship and I selected one uh, filming crew uh, from a very uh, distinguished background. And um, so they documented it. Um, there is a playwright who is writing a, a play for Broadway about my research. Uh, the, um, there was a huge amount of interest. I wrote a diary that uh, was posted on medium.com under my name, Avi Loeb. And uh, it was read by more than 2 million people over uh, the past two weeks. And it was translated to Spanish. Uh, the one uh, thing I wanted to accomplish by writing this diary is to show that science can be exciting. And um, uh, it doesn't need to be boring. And it can address a question that the public cares about. Uh, very often what you see scientists and experts doing is uh, sort of distance themselves from the public. They arrange for press conferences where they lecture the public about what they found after a lot of iterations. But here, the public could see how the scientific process uh, is uh, done. And, you know, it's often a work in progress. You make mistakes and you correct them. And uh, that's the way science is done. And I think it's better for the public to see how it really happens because it shows that you know scientists are not part of the elite they are making mistakes like any other human they follow uh, the evidence just like detectives you know trying to fix, figure something out uh, it's full of challenges and it's not about having an opinion or having a prejudice we just want the data to guide us uh, so um, it's a learning experience doing science and uh, i really think that the universe delivers uh, a sense of modesty to us. You know, we, we tend to invent stories where we are very significant, like we are at the center of the universe. That was a story that was believed in for thousands of years. Uh, Aristotle argued uh, that that's the case. And then uh, Copernicus and Galileo showed uh, otherwise based on the evidence they had. And, um, and then uh, we still, a lot of scientists prefer to believe that in fact, we are the only intelligent species that ever existed since the Big Bang until proven otherwise. And it's an extraordinary claim to think otherwise. I think it's actually extraordinary and arrogant to think that we are the smartest that ever lived because most stars formed billions of years before the sun. And there are billions of stars like the sun in the Milky Way galaxy. And a significant fraction of them has have a planet like the Earth, uh, roughly at the same separation. 
Um, so um, why would be, we be so arrogant as to think that it's extraordinary to think that someone like us existed? I think it's the other way around. Uh, and uh, it's actually much more extraordinary to claim that we are alone. Uh, and um, we just need to engage in the search and it will be as significant as finding a partner in our daily lives. You know, it could change our life. Um, and the, the approach that I'm taking is like going to the backyard and searching for objects that came from the cosmic street. Uh, every now and then, you know, among the rocks that are familiar to us in our backyard, we might find a tennis ball that was thrown by a neighbor. And uh, we should just be open-minded to that. And uh, the first interstellar objects were found only over the past decade. And that's a frontier of research that uh, I'm uh, engaged in. And I think it could uh, bring us closer to realizing what's in our cosmic street and whether there is a smarter kid in the block. Well, like all the great scientists through history, you you also strike me as, as, as being uh, a, a philosopher as well, do, do, which is good. Do you think the world is ready for this? Well, frankly, it doesn't really matter because reality is whatever it is, you know, and suppose uh, that uh, by putting Galileo in house arrest and today he would have been canceled on social media. Suppose as a result of that, humans were still denying the fact that the earth moves around the sun and we're claiming the sun moves around the earth. You know, what would be the outcome of that? Well, if we were to build the spacecraft and launch them, they would never reach their destination. We would never reach Mars. We would just miss the target because we have the wrong world model. And uh, so if we want to adapt to the reality that we share, we should allow uh, reality to teach us what it is, you know, not based on our belief system, but based on evidence. And it's really up to us to learn the lessons. And if we don't, we will make mistakes. If we don't believe that, uh, you know, pandemics are caused by viruses, we can believe in whatever we want, but we would be killed by pandemics, you know. So my point is, it's really up to us, the, the, the responsibility of listening to the clues, to the evidence and, and adapting to them because reality is whatever it is. And humans have this tendency of inventing stories that uh, flatter their ego. And uh, some people prefer to be in the metaverse. They put goggles on their head and they believe that they live among celebrities. And, and others, like for example, my colleagues who work on string theory, they believe in extra dimensions and they do fancy mathematics. They don't have evidence to support the notions, but nevertheless, that's part of the mainstream in theoretical physics, extra dimensions. We don't have evidence for that. Some people believe in the multiverse. We don't have any evidence for that. And that's part of the mainstream. And the fact that these ideas are part of the mainstream for 50 years now does not make them real. And it's just irresponsible, I think, for scientists to claim this should be part of the mainstream when there is no evidence for it. Whereas if we see uh, unfamiliar, new, strange objects coming into the solar system, uh, not to contemplate the possibility that they are technological, just because it's not uh, uh, acceptable within the mainstream or it's something completely new that we've never thought about, I think that's inappropriate. Uh, because fundamentally, we should be humble <laughs> and look at the evidence. If it looks anomalous, then we should explore it further and we should allow for all possibilities to be on the table. 
and rather than just strictly say everything in the sky must be rocks. So based on your experience and your research, do you have you uh, developed a particular view or an opinion of what we can call alien intelligence? I mean, what, what I'm just curious about some of your thoughts or observations around what that must be like or, yeah, or what so that even means. First of all, my sense is that um, you know, space travel is not suited for biological creatures because, you know, natural selection favored the life in some forms and survive on a planet like the Earth, you know, um, and um, traveling through space even with chemical rockets, for example, that would take us 50,000 years to reach the nearest star. Uh, we will need many generations uh, of humans on the spacecraft and there are lots of hazards from interstellar space. Cosmic rays could basically damage our body. It makes much more sense to send the technological equipment, the electronic equipment. Uh, I imagine artificial intelligence astronauts, uh, basically um, equipment that makes its own decisions because even light takes four years to arrive to us from the nearest star and tens of thousands of years from the edge of the Milky Way galaxy. You cannot expect a probe to wait for guidance from the sender. Uh, it has to be autonomous and we have the solution. It's called artificial intelligence and machine learning. And uh, I imagine that future astronauts will be equipped by an artificial brain that could decide what to do and it will have a purpose. It will be sent with a purpose. Uh, you know, when dandelion sends its seeds, uh, there is no umbilical cord connecting the seeds to the dandelion flower. Nothing to report back. You just send the seeds, hopefully they will deliver the DNA to a fertile ground and pursue the goal of creating more dandelion flowers there. Okay, so we can send uh, equipment to space that will pursue our goals, will be com completely autonomous the way nature does it, and could replicate itself in principle elsewhere and will pursue the goals that we want to associate with it. We, we might want to extend the longevity of what we care about and basically seed our galactic environment with whatever we want. And uh, there might be an interstellar gardener just like us who already did that in the past. But the way I conceive it is that if we see any objects you know, if they are active, if they're not, uh, some of them will be space trash, just like Voyager would be in a billion years. It will be not, it will not be operational. It could appear as a meteor when it collides with a planet, but, but some devices might still be operational. The senders may be dead, but the device has its own life. And, and the, these probes will pursue their goals. And when we encounter such a visitor, uh, you know, it's just like finding a visitor in your backyard we will have to decide how to respond to it. But in order to do that, we need to understand what it's seeking, what is it trying to do, and that will take a while. And we might uh, use artificial intelligence to figure out their AI uh, systems, um, because our AI systems may feel some kinship to their AI systems. And perhaps, you know, it's just like uh, the imitation game that uh, Alan Turing came up with uh, 90 years ago, he thought about AI systems imitating humans, which is pretty much what uh, GPT, uh, chat GPT is trying to do right now. But uh, uh, there is another level to the imitation game. And that's when we meet AI systems 
from another civilization, in which case our AI systems will try to imitate their AI systems. And that will be a fun thing to look at from the side, because as humans, we might not follow all the steps there. So do you think that um, we're just dandelion seeds? Like, is that how we got here? Well, it's possible that life was planted on Earth by some uh, interstellar gardener. We don't know that. It's also possible that it arose spontaneously out of the chemical soup right. that existed on Earth. That's the version that most scientists believe in. Um, you know, I, I don't have a strong opinion on that um, until uh, we have more clues. Um, but uh, the point is that we can become a gardener sending probes to interstellar space. And someone else may have started to do that long before we came to exist. You know, humans, the human species, existed only for a few million years. Uh, that's one part in 10,000 of the age of the universe. And so we are latecomers to the cosmic play, and we are not at the center of stage. So my point is really simple. If you arrive at a play, uh, at the end of the play, and you are not at the center of stage, the play is not about you. Uh, do, that's uh, that's quite brilliant. Do, do you do you think, I mean, that there's more secrets hiding in the seas in the oceans for us? Oh, definitely, definitely. I think this is the first step. Uh, by the way, it opens a new frontier of studying what lies outside the solar system, not by using telescopes the way astronomy was done traditionally, but by using microscopes, analyzing these tiny spherules and. We will do that in the coming uh, weeks at Harvard. And it's, this is just the first uh, interstellar meteor that we identified. Uh, and uh, in fact, those spherules that we found uh, at the bottom of the ocean, they, they you can think of them as romantic uh, rose petals that lead you to your partner because they were scattered in the direction of the path of the meteor. And at the end of this path, there may be a big relic, the core of the object. And we, in our next expedition, we will try to find it using sonar, a very different method than the magnetic sled that we use to collect those fragments. Um, and so if we find a big relic, then it will be obvious whether it's a rock or whether it was a technological gadget. And in particular, if it's a technological gadget, you know, we could find the label made on exoplanet Y on it so we will know where it came from or we can find some buttons on it and in the last class of my uh, freshman seminar at uh, harvard uh, in the spring semester i asked the students well if we find a gadget uh, should we press a button and uh, half of the class said no way we are worried about the consequences the other half said of course uh, we are very curious to find out what will happen um, and uh, then one of the students asked me, what would I do? Professor Love, what would you do? And I said, uh, I will just bring it to a laboratory and examine it before engaging with it. Uh, you know, it's uh, actually it's a, a perfect segue to my next question. I, I was going to ask you, from this, you know, mythological journey that you've been on, what, what's been the most amazing thing you've actually learned about yourself or just humanity or human nature from all this? Well, um, 
I think it, it showed me the power of the scientific method and the importance of taking risks because you know you never know whether you would be successful there were a lot of people who told me that there is no chance we would find anything which I found a reasonable statement but I told them look uh, just relax sit back if we come without anything you can tell me that's what I expected but uh, there is no, I, I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm doing all the heavy lifting here, going to the Pacific Ocean with a team of exceptional uh, professionals, and we will do our best to find something. So taking risks, you know, it's very easy for outside people to ridicule such an effort. I didn't use money from dark matter research, you know, for this. I told my colleagues, look, I'm not taking money from you. This was a private donor. Um, and. Uh, you know, it, in in the worst case, we would just not find anything. But uh, if we do find something, it opens a new window into scientific inquiry that uh, will establish future expeditions. And that's what we did. And I was thrilled when I saw the first image of a spheroid, this met, a metallic uh, marble uh, appearing on the microscope. I basically hugged the, the scientist next to me and uh, because um, it's something tangible that you actually see. And, you know, my daughter saw the image. It was beautiful. It, um, it was, uh, uh, the color was uh, gold. Uh, and, and she said, can I put it on a necklace? And I said, no way, because this is a millimeter inside, in size. I cannot thread it. Um, but, um, you know, the thrill of finding it and then later on using world-class uh, instruments to analyze it to see how what what is the structure the interior structure in it for example the day we went we came back we, we passed through uc berkeley and they have some facilities there and we imaged one of the spherules uh just as we landed and uh, it was an amazing image because uh, what we could see are spheres within spheres mm. Uh, basically like Russian dolls and the smallest sphere uh, was the size of a few hundred atoms really tiny and you ask yourself how can that form as a result of the explosion of this meteor well uh, what probably happened is that some iron oxide uh, created the tiniest uh, sphere and it solidified first uh, and then a bigger droplet of liquid uh, uh, molten iron surrounded it and carried that uh, little sphere with some other spheres in it and and then a bigger one engulfed whatever formed it so it was like uh, bigger and bigger spheres formed around the original tiny spheres and and consumed them and uh, it's just beautiful to see that i didn't expect it and also the shape of the uh, surface of the sphere tells us something about how, how hot it, uh, the material was when it solidified. So in the coming weeks, we'll analyze the element uh, composition, uh, what, what kind of elements were used to make these spheres. For example, we can check if, if <laughs> any of the molten spheres has the elements that you find in semiconductors. You know, if this, if this was an artificial object, and it had some semiconductors in it, we could find some trace elements that will give us an indication of that. Of course, we might not find them. Um, but then, uh, in addition, we can search for um, radioactive elements, uh, and they could give us, uh, I mean, they serve as clocks uh, because they have a finite lifetime, so they could inform us of the duration of the journey. How long ago was the material made? 
Um, and that's important because we know the velocity of the object. If you multiply it by the duration of the journey, you can tell from how far away it came. Uh, so that would be really interesting. I figured this out on the boat, on the ship itself. I didn't think about it before because this is the first time we're in, engaged in learning about a package that was delivered to our mailbox. You know, you can think of this as uh, uh, Amazon delivery services, but interstellar. So it takes, it could take a billion years for a package to be delivered to your doorstep. And we are sort of opening it right now. Well, it's, uh, it's almost, in my mind, like the monolith, but uh, it's a sphere. You know, this sort of uh, gift of, of, of uh, capacity enhancement, you know, that, that, that you're unraveling now. No, it just, it, it really is fascinating. I, I think, okay, last question um, and final thoughts, but I, I'm not sure if it was Albert Einstein or, or Stephen Hawking who said, you know, the, the question is whether we are alone in the universe or not and you know both answers are terrifying um what as a scientist what what is your what are your thoughts on that i mean right. are you worried about anything or how do you view this yeah in fact on this i i disagree with uh, stephen hawking who visited my home uh, about this seven years ago six years ago um i disagree with him i don't think it's terrifying at all i think it's an opportunity for us to learn something about our technological future because they arrived to us. If we find a technological device, it arrived to our doorstep. Our devices did not arrive yet to their doorstep. So there is a good chance that they are far more advanced technologically than we are. And think about a biker riding down you know, the street and uh, obviously there the bike rider does not care much about ants that are populating the cracks in the pavement. Uh, that's not of a concern. And I don't see us posing any threat to a higher intelligence, but it's an opportunity for the ants to learn something about the biker uh, and about the technology used to propel the bike. And um, the way I see it is a way, you know, a path for us to change our focus because right now, we are ju uh, just focused on the two-dimensional surface of this rock that we were born on. You know, we are engaged in military uh, fights, in uh, zero-sum games on this surface. And if you think about it, there is this third dimension that we don't pay attention to, which goes a very large distance. You know, it goes a distance relative to the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. The universe is a quadrillion times bigger, 10 to the power 15. And so when Elon Musk makes a statement about aliens or the universe based on what he witnesses within the orbit of the Earth around the sun, it's just like an ant trying to make a statement about the most distant planet in the solar system based on what it surveyed in a region that is the size of the head of a pin, okay, relative to the size of the most uh, of the orbit of the most distant planet. So, so it really is pres a presumptuous ant to make a statement like that. And I think for us, the, the fundamental lesson we should learn is be modest and try to learn from others who have been around for a longer time. And uh, perhaps, you know, we will recognize new technologies out of that. 
uh, we will be inspired to go into space. We will figure out what can uh, guarantee the longevity of our species. You know, these are big questions going beyond climate change, which is a relatively, you know, recent phenomena. You know, just think in terms of billions of years. How can we maintain the human species? How can we make sure that everything we care about survives in the long term? And, you know, within a billion years, this, irrespective of what we do on this planet, the sun will heat up and will boil off the oceans on Earth. And if we think globally, you know, everything we worry about right now in the newspapers and everything, it's really, uh, you know, a, a small dot in cosmic history and it's not so significant and uh, perhaps finding someone else will inspire us to think more globally and to really care about what matters and and work together you know the human species is one team on this rock this speck of uh, material that was left over from the formation of the sun uh, you know uh, we should think bigger than uh, the way we do right now and and uh, we might find happiness in that I uh, I can't. Uh, this is actually a perfect way to uh, to bring this to a close because that's a, a very poetic uh, and intelligent way to view this and very inspiring. And I I for one am extremely happy that uh, I got to speak to you in these early days. I imagine it's going to get a lot more difficult as this message uh, spreads around the world. But it's really been my honor. I I can't thank you enough for spending the time with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me.